regulation after regulation. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. New government regulations, which were created to protect employees. The regulations are... $1.8 trillion. There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep Is this really the best we can do? Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to the Federal Society's fourth branch podcast for the Regulatory Transparency Project. My name is Jack Derwin and I'm Assistant Director of RTP at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the guest speakers on today's call. If you'd like to learn more about each of our speakers and their work, you can visit regproject.org to view their full bios. After opening remarks and discussion between our panelists, we will go to audience Q&A. So please be thinking of any questions you'd like to ask our speakers. Today, we're pleased to host a conversation on regulating land use during a pandemic. To discuss this great topic, we're pleased to feature Yona Freemark, Emily Hamilton, and our moderator, Luke Wake. Luke, who will introduce our other speakers in just a moment, is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Luke, the floor is yours. Thank you for that. And yeah, I'm always happy to talk with Federalist Society here and to, um, in this case, moderate this, what looks to be a great conversation between Emily Hamilton and Yona Freemark um, about land use regulation in this moment. Uh, I'll just preface this conversation very briefly by saying that, that I am uh, chair of this uh, regulatory tra transparency projects, state and local regulation working group. And, and this working group recently released a white paper uh, over the fall, uh, last fall, recommending opportunities for 10 regulatory reforms in response to the pandemic. Now, the paper, I think, is worth checking out because there really are some good policy ideas there. And you can quickly hone in if there's a specific subject matter that you're you know, especially interested in. You can do that very quickly. There's 10 you know, chapters divided by, by subjects. And you know, for example, the first chapter addresses you know, sort of the immediate issue at hand for a lot of businesses, i.e., you know, to what extent should states and localities be regulating business activity during the pandemic? And then other chapters focus on such things as you know, regulations that inhibit entrepreneurialism, for example, you know, restrictions on independent contracting, and others you know, recommend that states hit the pause on new regulatory mandates during, during this time of crisis. But here today, we're focused on um, one particular chapter of this paper, um, specifically uh, the, the recommendations relating to, again, land use regulations, and, and I think specifically the question of whether and, and to what extent the current pandemic should prompt policymakers to reevaluate land use regulation. I would say in some sense, this feeds into a, a long running debate that really precedes the pandemic. And, and in fact, for that matter, I would note that the RTP published a paper in early 2020 before the pandemic came to the United States, making it a more general case for liberalization of zoning codes that restrict commercial activity and also for streamlining permit applications processes. So uh, there really is a lot to say about this issue, but I'm, I'm gonna leave the talking um, through the rest of this presentation to our speakers. Without further ado, let me introduce Yona Freemark and Emily Hamilton. Yona is a senior research associate in the Metropolitan Housing and Communities at the Urban Institute. Um, and he, he studies and focuses quite a bit on the intersection of land use, affordable housing, and transportation. So um, he, he's going to be a great speaker today. He holds a PhD um, and, and a master's in both city planning and transportation uh, from MIT. And also, Emily Hamilton is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason, and she focuses in her research on 
urban economics and land use policy. So both very well qualified to talk about the subject. Emily has her PhD in economics from George Mason. So uh, with that, I'd like to hand things over to um, both Emily and Yona to make some opening comments, and then they'll each have a chance to respond to each other, and then we'll go to sort of a more um, open conversation with you know, questions. And um, I appreciate that. Emily, would, I, would you be willing to uh, start off today? Yeah, thank you, Luke. Thanks to everyone who's joining the conversation today and to the Regulatory Transparency Project for hosting this discussion. Uh, Luke mentioned the recent white paper that our, our group published, uh, and Kim Herman and I, in the Kim's from the Southeastern Legal Foundation, contributed the land use section, and I'll be talking about some of the recommendations that we made there today. First off, in the immediate uh, response to the pandemic, restaurants were one of the, the hardest hit industries uh, as we've all seen and experienced. And land use regulations, uh, many localities provided models for adapting those rules to make it easier for restaurants to continue to provide their services to the extent feasible. Typical zoning restrictions provide a lot of barriers to businesses that need to adapt in quickly changing situations as we've seen in the pandemic. Uh, for example, commercial use restrictions might limit um, a block to, to having only restaurants or retail um, locations. They might stand in the way of, of restaurants selling groceries or offering catering services. Uh, and in some cases, we saw localities um, adapt those rules to make it easier for businesses to continue serving their customers in rapidly changing conditions. Some of these uh, adaptations are likely temporary. For example, um, localities have closed entire streets to allow restaurants or bars to serve their patrons outdoors, uh, as has become so important uh, in the pandemic response. Uh, but in some cases, these streeteries, as they're sometimes called, have been huge successes and might be worth keeping permanently, at least on weekends, uh, in some of the restaurant rows that have really seen them work well during the pandemic. Other responses um, like restaurants providing takeout windows or serving their food as a catering service um, have, have been um, impeded in some cases by, by land use restrictions that have not adapted to changing climates and in other cases have allowed restaurants um, to stay in business and weather this storm. Secondly, um, the pandemic has revealed some needed long-term changes to um, introducing flexibility to um, commercial land use restrictions. As we're seeing a lot of businesses, unfortunately, unable to, to stay in business throughout the pandemic, there's likely going to be a lot of uh, commercial vacancy and a need for rules that allow new businesses to enter the market more easily than is feasible under a lot of, of current um, restrictions. 
Houston provides an interesting example. As one of the country's most liberally regulated land use markets, it nonetheless has restrictions that are going to be serious barriers to new businesses opening during the pandemic recovery. Houston, for example, has 14 different types of parking requirements for different types of restaurants and bars. Uh, so if a, a, a specific type of restaurant currently requires less parking than a new uh, type of business, business that might replace it requires, the, the property wouldn't be able to be repurposed in the, the new type of, of restaurant that might be feasible during the pandemic recovery because parking restrictions will prevent that, that physical space from being reused in a new way. Further, as we've all gotten used to working remotely, there may be offices that, that don't reopen in their physical location or that offer some of their employees the opportunity to work remotely uh, permanently or at least for, for much of their work week. Given this, um, commercial space may be oversupplied during the pandemic recovery, and there are opportunities for um, repurposing some of that space as residential or other types of use. But again, commercial use restrictions may be standing in the way during the pandemic recovery. And finally, the pandemic revealed a real need for flexible housing markets and housing situations. We saw healthcare workers traveling across the country at the beginning of the pandemic to New York City, for example, where the outbreak was most severe. And while these healthcare workers were, were bravely offering their services where it was most needed, many of them faced serious barriers in being able to find housing once they got there. Short-term rentals uh, like Airbnb or HomeAway can offer an important service to, to in this case, healthcare workers who need a short-term housing solution. But in all times, short-term rentals can provide an important source of housing for people uh, who are, are moving to a location for work and need somewhere to stay while they find somewhere more permanent. But local restrictions, as in New York City, often prevent this important source of housing from serving those who need it. Opponents to, um, to short-term rentals often raise concerns about affordability, arguing that uh, taking supply off of the long-term rental market causes affordability problems for permanent tenants. But relative to other barriers on new housing construction and housing supply, short-term rental restrictions are a small part of, of the, um, the puzzle that can uh, reduce housing supply from that, that permanent tenant market. Rather than uh, restricting housing for those who only need it on a short-term basis, local policymakers should look at reforming their regulations that prevent uh, multifamily housing and housing in general from being built in the places where people want to live. Thanks a lot. I will now turn it over to Yona and look forward to talking further during our moderated discussion. Thank you so much, Emily. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation and I'm really happy to be able to speak with this panel today. 
Um, to start out with some initial thoughts, I wanted to know broad agreement with the land use reform elements uh, in response to the COVID-19 crisis that Emily and her colleague Kimberly Herman uh, produced in the white paper that was shared. What is interesting about many of the issues related to regulatory reform in housing markets and in land use markets is that there are many instances of agreement between people who are ideologically on the progressive end of things who are focused on such issues as housing affordability and social equity, and people who are ideologically on the libertarian end of things who are focused on expanding access to markets and increasing entrepreneurship. Some examples of how this cross-ideological concurrence might play out include broad agreement about the ability of people to use spaces freely. Emily and Kimberly point to the fact that there have been numerous instances of healthcare and other essential workers being deprived of the right to live in certain places because of the fear that they might have been exposed to the virus. This is an unacceptable overreach that is hurting people who need access to housing the most right now. I would add that we can think about this issue of access to housing more broadly, such as in terms of people re-entering society from jail or prison. They too have the right to live in our communities and restrictions on formerly incarcerated people are inappropriately depriving people of the ability to re-enter the workforce. A correlate to this is the fact that landlords are currently allowed to use what is called source of income discrimination in much of the country, which means that they can deny people using subsidized housing vouchers the ability to move in, which makes little sense if our goal is to encourage equality of access. I think there is also broad agreement between ideological progressives and libertarians on the concept of allowing small business owners to use their spaces freely. And we can think about this in several different ways. Emily and Kimberly note that commercial zoning in many cities is quite restrictive. Just to give you an example of this from Arlington, Virginia, which is just across the state line from DC, convenience grocery stores are permitted in what are referred to as C1, C2, and C3 districts, but require site plan approval from the city in C0, RA, and RC districts, and aren't even allowed at all in RAH and C10 districts. This kind of minute differentiation is not helpful and actually increases the burden on both commercial users and the public sector that has to oversee permitting. I would add that we need to think even more broadly about what being open to more commercial space should look like. For example, we should be more comfortable with allowing what are referred to as informal commercial uses like street vendors, food trucks, and the like. These are often lower income entrepreneurs who need a leg up. We shouldn't be banning them from our streets. In terms of ways in which a progressive and libertarian approach to reform might diverge, I can think specifically of two major areas of interest. First, I think we continue to need strong urban design standards. The walkability and livability of our communities requires significant public intervention in terms of ensuring that buildings are designed to be approachable to pedestrians, in terms of requiring adequate public space and the like. Second, freeing up apartments for short-term rentals, as Emily just noted, may open up more space for people who are visiting or for people who have trouble qualifying for traditional leases on apartments. At the same time, the growth of companies like Airbnb has unquestionably been associated with several troubling trends, including the replacement of previously available affordable housing rental stock with units that are now devoted permanently to Airbnb units. 
This in turn has increased the cost of units in popular neighborhoods, which cannot be understood as a positive given the interest to encourage access to affordable housing in these exact same communities. Anyway, so those are some of my initial thoughts and I'm looking forward to further conversation. Thank you, both of you. Um, Emily, would you like to respond briefly to what Yona just said there? Sure. Yeah, as, as Yona said, um, we certainly have a, a lot of agreement about the importance of access to urban space for people of, of all um, backgrounds uh, and, and recognize many of the um, same solutions to current barriers to that access. Uh, Yona brought up the the issue of um, of of the need for discretionary review in Arlington, uh, Virginia, as as one example of the permitting process that can stand in the way of um, new businesses opening or new construction getting started. And this is a, a very important point and another issue that that local policymakers should remain focused on as they seek to facilitate pandemic recovery. When someone uh, wants to um, propose a, a new business, it shouldn't require a, um, a big discretionary review process um, in, in order to facilitate that, as, as long as that business is going to um, not have major externalities uh, for, for its, its neighborhood, as, as most um, typical retail uses do not. Uh, these, these barriers serve to make it more difficult for commercial space to be repurposed and for new businesses to enter the, their neighborhoods with, without a lot of public benefit. Uh, Yona mentioned the issue of um, street vendors who are, are currently heavily policed in, in many communities. This is another area where we have complete agreement. I just want to um, flag one example of hot dog vendors in Los Angeles, where, where there's a, a thriving market for uh, what they're selling. But over the years, as these vendors have become more and more policed, the um, the capital that hot dog vendors are using has become um, extremely minimal. Whereas they used to have portable grills um, or even trucks that they would use um, to cook and sell their hot dogs out of, often today they just use cookie sheets on top of um, little um, little candles to, um, to cook their food, um, reducing their potential to serve customers, their profits, all in, all in service of, of not really benefiting the communities where these rules are enforced. One area where we may have some disagreement is on the issue of, of urban design standards. I'll certainly agree with Yona that much of the development that we see today doesn't match um, what, what often uh, provides the, the liveliest, most walkable um, neighborhoods that provide uh, thriving commercial areas in our cities. But I'd argue that it's in fact um, land use regulations that are often standing in the way of this, um, this livelier uh, design rather than a need for new urban design standards. Uh, for example, the discretionary re review process that um, drives up costs and 
um, makes it difficult for small developers to compete in the, the current real estate environment uh, means that often only very large projects are, are feasible to get built in, in our urban environments. And as a result, we lose out on the, the, the fine-grained urbanism that happens as a result of incremental development that we could see in lower Manhattan, for example. Um, that type of, of development just isn't feasible under the very strict rules and design processes that many localities enforce today. Well, thank you, Emily. And Yona, would you like to respond to Emily there? Yeah, you know, just very quickly, I think what's interesting is that um, regulatory reform can be done in a variety of ways, right? I mean, we can either be talking about just getting rid of regulations or more realistically changing the sorts of real uh, regulations we're using uh, to, you know, regulate the construction of new buildings, the regulation of businesses and things of that sort. I think that um, we're in broad agreement that there don't need to be so many steps and processes for individual small businesses to open for street vendors to provide the sorts of, uh, you know, foods that they provide. Those, those seem like unnecessary burdens on people who are honestly just trying to make a living and who are trying to use the public right-of-way in a way that other businesses are able to do. I think where we might diverge is, I agree with Emily that we certainly do have zoning codes right now that actually encourage very poor use of the public space. I completely agree that there are many zoning regulations that, that are quite hostile to pedestrians. My sense is that we don't need to get rid of those, though. We need to reform them so that they're directly correlated, they're designed to enforce you know, what are known as uh, key elements of creating walkable, livable cities. Well, very good. Um, and it is interesting to note the um, what seems to be, at least between the sort of the progressive and, and the libertarian side of things, uh, some, some degree of you know, sub, substantial consensus, as at least as to some of these problems, uh, maybe a little bit more difficulty in, in terms of the devil in the detail as to where, where do we go from here in, in solving those problems. But uh, it's a good first step. Um, let me ask, and, and, and this this could be to you know either of you, but to what extent do you think that we should view this current pandemic as a, a real meaningful opportunity for regulatory reform? Um, or conversely, what do you say to those who would you know call for you know respond to calls for liberalization at this moment as essentially reactionary that you know everything that Emily said in the paper, uh, the white paper that you know those are things that you would have said you know even before the pandemic began. I can try to respond to that uh, quickly. I think that one thing that's been surprising about the response to the pandemic in a lot of our communities is that we've seen a lot of experimentation, a lot of cities saying, you know, our existing rules on things like allowing people to eat on the sidewalk or allowing restaurants to open, you know, little um, places to sit on what used to be former parking spaces, we're too restrictive. We were uh, having rules out there that were making it impossible to live in the pandemic because we weren't even letting people eat inside. So I think what we've seen over the last few months has been a genuine interest in changing the way we interact with our cities and the rules that we use to determine uses in our cities. And I'm hopeful that uh, the positive elements that came out of that, the things that I think we enjoy uh, you know, in the small moments of enjoyment we have over the last year uh, should be used as a, uh, you know, the start of real thinking about changes we want to see in the way our communities work. 
Well, great. Emily, anything on this question? Yeah, um, certainly all of the the recommendations that, that Kim and I made in the white paper are probably things that I would have said prior to the pandemic. Uh, but I do think the pandemic has revealed some longstanding issues in local land use planning uh, that may be um, easier to address now that the extent of these problems has been revealed. Uh, for example, many localities have commercial vacancy rates that are much higher than their residential vacancy rates. Uh, they might have vacant strip malls or, or um, larger malls, uh, as well as office buildings that uh, just don't have users um, available to um, to to put that space to use, um, and the the longer term trends that have been accelerated by the pandemic, like remote work or online shopping, might make it uh, more um, more politically feasible to to get rid of some of those use restrictions and allow um, those those spaces to be put to new productive uses, whether as residences or um, distribution centers or other uses that remain viable where the the uses that those spaces are currently zoned for may not be. Very good. So, um, well, Emily, you, you talk a lot about, you know, restaurants and bars particularly. I, I, you know, I, we all know that they've been hard hit with this pandemic, but so have a lot of other businesses. And I'm, I'm in California where there's a lot of businesses that are <laughs> maybe more regulated than, than other um, parts of the country. And, and we're seeing a lot of business closures, um, and you know, throughout the country right now. So as I read your, your recommendations, you were kind of forward looking about how, you know, how to allow, you know, I kind of think of, you know, the fire destroying, all, you know, all of these old growth trees and new trees trees are going to, you know, emerge and, you know, hopefully uh, in the future to replace those, but, but we want to enable that growth to happen. And that's kind of what you're talking about, but you specifically focus on restaurants and bars and when, when you're talking about, you know, the need for flexibility and allowing people to change, is that, is your point more, more specifically that we, we ought not to, you know, micromanage everything these businesses do and we ought to be allowing them to you know pivot from one uh one thing to the next or to make changes without having to go back before a review board or should there should there be any review when a business intends to sort of change the way it's operating um, from zoning authorities uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say there should be no review, uh, but in general um, the the types of uses um, that that uh, commercial land use restrictions permit should be um, much more broad than they are today. Uh, to provide um, one example, there's a new uh, trend of um, axe throwing bars, um, at least prior prior to the pandemic in, in US and Canadian cities. And these this isn't really a, a use that anyone had thought about prior to an entrepreneur suggesting that, that this might be something that, that customers uh, want to come and do. And in many cases, these, these businesses had to go through incredible, um, incredibly expensive and long um, review processes to get permission to open in the location of their choice. But they're not um, 
presenting any um, any externalities to their their neighborhoods that a, a typical bar or restaurant would not. Um, so simply uh, broadening use restrictions to to greatly expand the type of retail businesses that can operate under commercial use zoning could go a long way toward reducing the cost of, of opening new businesses and speeding up economic recovery. Yeah, I completely agree with that assessment. And I would add more genuinely that I think that one of the problems with the review process we've set up right now, especially for commercial establishments, is that we have created a system where everything requires such extensive public sector review that we're wasting a lot of public resources on reviewing rather than producing better outcomes for people in communities. And it's not clear to me that, you know, I'm not sure that axe bars are necessarily what uh, everyone's thinking of, but I love it, Emily. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that an axe bar uh, in one community versus another makes more or less sense. And the idea that the zoning code is saying that an axe bar can only be allowed in one part of the community versus another is pretty uh, illogical and, and unfair uh, to both the public sector and the business itself. Well, Yona, I want to follow up a little bit on some of the, something you mentioned a moment ago. You're talking about the need for, you know, allowing street vendors and I take it like food trucks and whatnot to, to operate more freely. And I, I know that a lot of the opposition there has typically come from more brick and mortar establishments. Um, but let me ask you, um, you know, so one of the temporary measures that we've seen a lot of communities have embraced during this pandemic is, is out to enable outdoor dining uh, in light of these restrictions. So for example, allowing people to you know dine on the sidewalks or even in the streets, as I think Emily noted. But um, is, is that fair um, if that's going to continue? If, I believe Emily suggested maybe, maybe we should you know, consider you know, allowing businesses to do this maybe on an ongoing basis to, is that fair to non-brick and mortar business or are there other issues presented that you think are maybe concerning with that kind of idea of making that more of a permanent operation? Well, I think certainly from a purely equity perspective, it's pretty unreasonable that it has become acceptable over the past year for brick and mortar restaurants and the sort to open businesses on the street, you know, to serve people on what used to be, used to be parking spaces, while at the same time, we're having police go and stop people from having, you know, taco uh, trucks line up on the corner or street vendors on the sidewalk. And that seems to me that it's an uh, unequal, you know, enforcement of the use of the public right of way. And it's frankly unfair for the lower income, generally entrepreneurs who are wanting to do things like street side retail. My general response to this is that what we need are more public right of way, larger sidewalks in a lot of co our communities that allow for brick and mortar uh, establishments to have outdoor spaces, but also that encourage uh, you know, street vendors and people who have uh, mobile trucks to be able to provide food and, and things of that sort. I think we can be open to both. And I think that that kind of variety will end up creating more vibrant communities that more people will want to enjoy. Emily, I'd like you to respond, but I, I want to ask sort of a, an additional question to layer on, and, and, and specifically, th those who object to um, you know enabling um, you know, more freely enabling you know food trucks, for example, and street vendors to operate. Again, I noted that tends to come from more sort of brick and mortar establishments. Uh, to what extent, in addition to you know anything you want to say in responding to Yona, to what extent do you think that there is actually um, sort of principled uh, sort of basis for uh, objecting to that? 
that sort of liberalization? Or, um, or, or do you think that the only ground for which someone can really actually object to the sort of reforms Yonda's talking about is um, really having a sort of a pecuniary um, sort of competitive edge over you know, possible you know, new entrance into the market? Well, I think one um, one principled uh, objection is that um, many U.S. cities um, have quite narrow sidewalks um, on on some of these restaurant rows. Um, so, uh, you know, perhaps during the the pandemic, um, it makes sense to to allow some of that that scarce sidewalk space to be used as, as outdoor dining space. But um, in the longer term, taking away some street parking space um, might might be a, a less conflict prone um, approach relative to to taking away some of the um, the the smaller amount of pedestrian space in some of these um, locations. And in general, on the, the issue of parking, across um, most U.S. localities, there's this um, incredible amount of, of real estate dedicated to uh, sometimes zero-priced or sometimes very um, low-priced street parking, whereas there are um, businesses or uh, other uses that might be able to put that real estate to a much higher value use. Um, Street um, uh, food trucks, for example, or restaurants that could do outdoor dining in that space that's restricted only to parking. Uh, If we were to use a demand-based uh, price for that space would likely be willing to far outbid what drivers are willing to pay to store their cars there. Yona, I, I'm thinking I'm hearing between you and Emily, but please clarify if I'm incorrect, that, that there actually is, you know, again, broad consensus between a lot of what you're saying. And, and I think particularly on this issue of parking, if I'm understanding you correctly, that, that maybe there's agreement here that parking requirements specifically to, you know, say, well, to open this kind of establishment, you need to have this much parking that, that, that really is unnecessary. And I've heard from some quarters maybe is sort of incompatible with sort of some of um, the public policies folks are trying to you know, shift to encourage more public transit and whatnot. Um, it, so the question to you is, is this really a subject where there is, you know, compelling cross ideological agreement um, or, or, or that this is actually a problem and, and, and ought to be reformed or do, do you not see that kind of opportunity for you know, meaningful reform at the local level? Well, you know, this is an interesting, uh, yet again, another example where I think, um, People who are thinking about cities and are progressive and people who are thinking about cities and are libertarian actually have very similar views. The idea that we should get rid of parking mandates, parking requirements for new businesses or for housing, I think is shared among those two groups. Unfortunately, I think a large share of public policymakers neither consider themselves progressive in that way nor libertarian. In fact, uh, have a different view about why we would need parking. And that may be that they are prioritizing people's ability to drive around places. And that has a different perspective built into it. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that is a disappointing approach that unfortunately dominates in most, many of our cities, most of our cities, in fact. Most cities have parking requirements for uh, new residential construction that increases the cost of housing construction that actually encourages people to drive rather than to walk, bike, or take public transit, and uh, that actually increases costs for developers. 
And those requirements are really punitive for uh, the you know, free market, but they're also punitive from the perspective of increasing equity. So I think what we need is um, more demonstration of the, the fact that there is sort of an agreement from multiple sides on, on the value of making changes on this front, but also recognition that there's a large share of public policymakers in the United States who are really focused on prioritizing automobile access. And that goes beyond their ideological views related to you know, uh, equity or uh, free enterprise. Emily, do you have any thoughts on on that? Uh, in addition, you know, I, I I think there's also a trend. I, I would note, you know, again towards the smart growth idea of really encouraging, you know, less, um, you know, driving. But to what, you know, do you have any thoughts specifically on what I asked Yona? But also, uh, to to the extent, or are we seeing municipalities actually going the other direction and you know, affirmatively, you know, preventing, um, you know, construction that might, you know, contemplate, you know significant parking in the interest of what they think is um, you know, good good social policy. I uh, completely agree with with Yona that this is an area of agreement between us and um, across uh, people who would like to see reform across the political spectrum. Um, we have seen a fair amount of local reform on the issue of parking requirements in recent years. I think among some policymakers, there's a recognition that parking requirements uh, go a long way toward driving up construction costs uh, and, and are standing in the way of some local policymakers' transportation goals. Um, these requirements provide just a, a huge incentive to drive over other forms of, of transportation. Uh, number one, by, by lowering the, the cost of driving by providing typically zero priced car storage anywhere people want to go. Uh, but number two, by making walking or public transit or cycling much less appealing because huge parking lots that are, are mandated by, by local rules are uh, separating different um, different destinations and making an unpleasant urban environment. Okay. Um, well, I think you, you noted Emily earlier that you know we're we're we're, we're likely to see uh, you know, we see have see higher vacancy rates actually right now certainly in commercial uh, commercially zoned areas. I know especially a lot of you know office settings are, are downsizing right now. A lot of people are going to move maybe even on a more permanent basis to having a large portion of their their you know their labor uh, working remotely on a cloud based basis from home or whatnot. So th that really does raise some interesting questions about you know the future of our cities what that looks like, but you specifically seem to be proposing that we should be taking this as an opportunity to address some of our housing affordability issues by enabling um, sort of those buildings to be renovated and used for residential purposes. So I'd like you to, you know, address this, but also to talk about um, maybe maybe both of you, like what, what are the challenges here, but also what are the opportunities? And again, what does all of this mean for the future of our cities? Yeah, I, I am uh, reticent to make big predictions about what the pandemic means for the future of our cities, uh, other than to say urbanization has has been a, a human trend for millennia. So even in a world with a much more remote work, I, I see a consistent um, demand for people to live in locations with, with lots of other people um, that offer the, the types of um, 
diversity and uh, access to amenities that just can't be replicated outside of urban environments. Um, in terms of, of housing affordability, um, we've seen some of the highest cost uh, housing markets in the country see very rapidly increasing uh, vacancy rates and falling rents in their apartment markets, uh, particularly in San Francisco and in Manhattan. Uh, and there's been a lot of skepticism among the public and among policymakers that uh, permitting more housing, particularly lower cost types of housing uh, to be built um, through the through the private market is a viable solution to urban housing affordability problems. Uh, but the the pandemic response provides some reason to think that in fact supply and demand in housing markets work as we expect them to. As the um, pandemic has caused um, demand to decrease in in some of these very expensive markets prices have fallen in response. Uh, so in turn, we um, have some, some strong evidence that allowing more multifamily supply to be built in these um, expensive locations would have a, a similar effect in the, the longer term and could go uh, a very long way toward making the highest demand locations more affordable. Yeah, I you know I I agree with Emily that there's been some interesting trends over the last few months um, where we've seen you know somewhat of an exodus of higher income people, especially from some of the largest cities in the country, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area and in in the New York region. And as Emily noted, you know the the sort of vacancy that resulted, especially in those higher income units has produced a decline in rental rates. Now, my sense is that we're going to actually come back to some major problems with housing affordability relatively soon after the COVID crisis ends, hopefully. Um, I am not under any assumption that we're going to have sort of a, have a maintenance of lower apartment costs or lower housing costs over the long run. What I do think, though, is that we're going to continue to need to address the lower end of the spectrum in terms of uh, people with lower incomes uh, with additional housing subsidies of some sort. I don't think that the kinds of housing reforms that we've talked about so far, you know, increasing allowed uh, rights to build, increasing um, allowances in terms of short-term leases and things of that sort, are genuinely going to address the housing needs of the lowest income members of the population. So I am concerned. I continue to be concerned about those people. And I worry that we have yet to provide the sort of national programs to address housing affordability that are necessary uh, in the coming years. So I want to ask one more question then, and then I'll ask um, Jack, who's on the line with Federalist Society, if we have you know questions from, from the audience. But following up on this conversation about affordability issues, you know, of course, in the before times, there, there really was a lot of attention, I think, being focused on the issue of affordable housing um, that seems to, during the pandemic, have shifted a little bit to more policy debates about eviction moratoriums and so, so forth. But, you know, I, again, the question I think is to what extent of any 
does this pandemic give us a reason to rethink land use regulation and how that's contributing to problems with affordability? As I heard you a moment ago, Yona, it sounded like your, your, your sort of chief policy proposal here would be more focused on things like subsidies. And I assume, Emily, uh, probably that would probably be a point of, of disagreement. I, I, I know, you know, while it sounds like we have maybe broad ideological agree agreement between progressives and at least libertarians on the need for land use reform, certainly I don't think you have that with regard to those sort of policies, you know, subsidies and so forth. And so the, the question is, you know, how can we use uh, what seems to be like a growing cross ideological consensus about land use problems specifically to actually see some meaningful change? And I, I ultimately, uh, does that mean that you have to find a way to overcome nimbyism and do things at the state level or, you know, how, what is a path forward? Well, uh, first off, I, I would actually agree with you, with Yona that there's certainly a role for um, for housing subsidies for for those at the the lowest end of the market. Uh, but it's crucial that new new housing subsidies also be paired with the land use liberalization, uh, Luke, that you mentioned and, and that we've been talking about, um, because if not expanding, uh, for example, Section 8 vouchers to to cover a um, a larger share of uh, low income tenants is going to increase demand for housing and potentially exacerbate uh, housing affordability problems for everyone who doesn't qualify um, for those vouchers based on their income. And in some of the highest cost parts of the country, it's not just the the lowest income households who are, are struggling with, with housing affordability. Um, so I, I do think there's a, a role for states to step in uh, to set limits on the extent to which localities can block housing construction um, and, and certainly expanding um, housing subsidies uh, only makes land use liberalization more urgent. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, place that we seem to have come to in, in much of the broader housing policy debate, which is that I think there's a recognition that First of all, the housing voucher system, which is sometimes known as Section 8, sometimes housing choice vouchers, in the United States is broken because it only covers a, a small share of people who would otherwise qualify for it. And that's because of congressional limitations on funding. And the result is that right now, housing vouchers are allocated pretty much as a lottery. And you're lucky to get one if you're low income, but the majority of low income people who need them don't have access to them. And I think there is a growing affirmation, uh, and this was actually part of Biden's uh, campaign plan, that we need to expand the housing voucher system to make sure that it covers everybody who is within a you know, certain low income range. And I, I agree that that's very important uh, part of this conversation. In terms of uh, liberalization of, of housing codes, I agree with Emily that we absolutely need more housing construction. The question is, how that housing construction occurs. I, I think there's a lot of evidence out there that uh, housing markets with more available new housing uh, is likelier to produce lower costs overall. But I remain concerned that it is primarily oriented, the, the new construction is primarily oriented towards the higher end of the market. And so I think it's very important that we maintain significant support for project-based subsidies for new affordable housing, which means things like um, the low-income housing tax credit or expanded public housing or social housing programs 
which allow for direct government investment in new housing construction designed specifically for low or moderate income people. I think that that's an essential complement to an increase in the market rate supply of new housing stock. Well, thank you, both of you. And again, this is an opportunity for the folks on the line, if they have questions, to, to raise those questions. Okay. Well, while we're waiting for a moment to see, you know, if, if folks have questions, I assume that there probably will be some. But I wanted to follow up on some comments, you know, that you you raised at, at some point here. That you know, while we have a, apparently you know some broad consensus uh, on the need for some reforms, you know, one thing that you think is important is to maintain you know good um, urban design standards. And I guess um, the, my question there is exactly what do you mean by that? Um, and I would specifically note, you know, that this, again, it did seem like there. Was some concern from both of you about the, sort of the discretion that that land use authorities tend to have here, uh, and we seem to see this a lot with you know vague uh, terms and you know the, the you know, zoning authority is supposed to consider you know um, things that seem rather subjective. And um, so, how do you uh, address um, you know urban design standards in a way that kind of avoids those those concerns? And so I think one of the major questions raised by uh, you know, people who are concerned about overuse of land use regulations by communities throughout the country is that there's a lot of discretion involved in looking through new housing and new building construction in general, right? There are committees, commissions at the local level, sometimes the city council, but often unelected appointed zoning commissions that will simply go through and announce that they like or don't like a certain building type and building design. And that is problematic from the perspective of, you know, fairness and the perspective of aesthetics not necessarily being something that everyone agrees on at all times. I would say also there is a concern that our current zoning code uh, produces urban design outcomes that are really problematic for pedestrians. And this can, this can come in a variety of different forms. One is, you know, we have streets that are extremely wide with very tight sidewalks, which is a result of decisions by public work departments and transportation departments in communities throughout the country. And that's something that we need to address if we're going to create communities that, uh, you know, are more walkable. We also have uh, requirements for things like uh, you know, building designs that go straight up from the ground floor to, you know, the 10th or 20th floor. And the result is an alienation of pedestrians from the street front. So my proposal is that we use what are called form-based codes, which basically means that we come to an agreement at the local level about what kinds of mat what's called building massing, so like the general outlines of buildings we're okay with, and then regulate new construction from that perspective. We expect the buildings in a certain neighborhood uh, respond to pedestrians in a way that's generally agreed on from the beginning and does not require variances for every new construction. And I think that that approach is, you know, more equitable in that it treats more new developers fairly, but also can produ produce building designs that are more comfortable for people at the street level. Um, so this is something that cities like Miami are already starting to pioneer. Um, and it's something that other communities are considering throughout the country. Emily, do you have a response to that or, um, or alternative ideas that you think cities should really be thinking about? Like maybe, for example, you know, zoning as of right concept or how, how different is quote, zoning as of right from what he's, he's talking about? 
Well, typically as of right means that uh, a, um, a proposal that's in line with the rules on the books uh, can just go through a quick um, permitting process that confirms it's in line with the rules on the books rather than requiring a community input or um, a, a local a policymaker to make a, a decision on whether or not uh, that, that use is, is going to be approved. Uh, in terms of, of form-based zoning, I agree that, that in some cases it's better than standard U.S. Um, zoning approaches. Downtown Nashville is, is another example of where a form-based code seems to be working pretty well. But in many cases, localities have layered form-based codes on top of traditional zoning restrictions. So they add um, new limits on, on the, the shape that buildings can take on top of all the use restrictions uh, that, that were already in place. Um, so they just provide one more barrier um, to development and, and one more um, factor that can drive up development costs rather than providing a more flexible uh, regulatory model. Well, very good. It looks like we, we have a question here in, in the chat box. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I, I appreciate the question 100%, but um, they're asking, you know, how do you inform local planning commissions and board of zoning appeals of the need to balance and protect neighborhood interests? So I, I think they're responding to some of the specific things you've said and, and, and asking, you know, to what extent um, or how do we ensure that, you know, the community's interests in, are, you know, are, are balanced in, in the process or to what extent should we? You know, I think this is a question that is, that is eliciting really vivid debates in much of the planning sphere right now. The question is, is there a role for local communities in the participation process? And what does the participation process need to look like uh, in order to both get equitable or you know, effective outcomes versus uh, outcomes that reflect what the community wants? I think there are a lot of people out there who suggest that the, particip the participation processes that are used uh, at the local level are inherently broken because they have the tendency to uh, encourage whiter, wealthier homeowners to participate more than lower income minority renters. And that has a tendency to, uh, you know, basically reinforce the power and the needs of those higher income people rather than lower income people. And, and that is absolutely the case in many communities throughout the country. At the same time, the idea of getting rid of participation altogether implies that somehow people who run planning departments are fully aware of all the needs of their communities. So I think there needs to be a recognition of the concerns related to participation, but not an elimination of participation entirely. I think my last point related to this is that I think we need more people running for office at the local level who have clear platforms about how they want planning to work in their communities, and they can share that with their constituents as they're running for office. I think this should be a, uh, an issue for debate in the electoral process in communities throughout our country. We should have candidates who disagree about what, they, what kind of land uses they want to see in the future. Um, unfortunately, that's something that we rarely see in U.S. local elections, but I think it's really important for the future. 
I just had a, a couple of um, potential technocratic ways to um, protect neighborhood interests while also um, liberalizing use zoning. Uh, one is called uh, performance-based zoning, and this can involve setting things like noise limits, which are often one of the, the primary um, externality concerns in, in urban settings, and saying that um, nightclubs, for example, have to keep the, the outdoor decibel level below a certain level if they, they want to keep operating in their location. Um, and they can use um, soundproofing or, or other means to stay within the limits of a performance zoning ordinance. Um, and also just, just wanted to go back to the um, parking policy issue that we've talked about a lot today um, and point out that when businesses aren't required to provide uh, tons of, of parking at their location, that can go a long way toward um, reducing the, the burden that a new business will have on its neighborhood because people uh, will, be, will be driving into the neighborhood uh, perhaps for, for more than one trip or combining, combining trips rather than driving in and out of the neighborhood um, many times throughout a day if parking is uh, priced according to demand rather than mandated to be provided. Uh, and, and also it can encourage people to travel into and out of a neighborhood um, on foot or by transit rather than uh, by contributing to neighborhood traffic congestion concerns. Well, thank you, both of you. And this really has been a, a great dialogue. So as always, I appreciate Federalist Society for hosting this and for you guys presenting. And I mean that in the Midwestern way. Um, you guys, thank you so much. Um, can you both just take a moment to give some closing thoughts and and, and maybe in the, in the process of this, just um, you know, say, you know, maybe if you haven't already, you know, what you think really the, the top priority in terms of land use reform should be? I'll start out. Um, first of all, I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all today. And um, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, speaking with Emily about, um, you know, the, most of the, the elements of land use reform that actually we share in terms of our goals for the future. And, and honestly, that's the positive aspect of this that I think we should take into, into the next year. I think the coronavirus situation has been so devastating for our communities both in terms of you know, its effect in, on health, but also just in terms of the livelihood of, of our cities in terms of small businesses and, and people's jobs. And I think that many of the changes we're talking about, you know, allowing more commercial uses uh, in different communities, allowing reduced parking requirements, increasing affordability of housing, those are key conclusions that apply both to the period we're living in right now and to a future where hopefully we're not worried about the virus. So I'm really optimistic about that. And it's really exciting that we have people from all over the political spectrum who are really enthusiastic about pursuing these projects and looking for these changes in cities everywhere. I, yeah, I really enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you, Yona, Luke, and RP, RTP. Um, I, I think that, that we've seen some very successful local responses in some cases where localities have uh, increased flexibility um, to help their businesses weather this time. Um, and 
hopefully this has has shown a light on how local land use restrictions are a barrier to both business and housing affordability and accessibility at all times um, and potentially um, will open the way to permanent and further reforms um, to make it easier to put urban land to its um, most valuable uses. Well, fantastic. Thank you again to everybody. And um, as always, um, we, we've enjoyed this. I think um, there'll be many more to come. Absolutely. Thank you, Luke. And thank you, Yona and Emily, so much for taking the time to join us today. And once again, thank you to our audience for also tuning into today's live podcast. We welcome any listener feedback by email at rtp at regproject.org. And with that, we are adjourned. On behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 